Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to be up here tonight. I'd like to thank Pastor Wally for asking me to speak. I know we have a short business meeting tonight right after service, so let's just get right into the message. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a very familiar portion of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be focusing on verses 13 to 16. Again, I'm sure that this passage is familiar to most of you, but tonight I want to look at it in the context of evangelism. You know, this world is becoming an increasingly dark and degenerate place, and it needs all of us, now more than ever, to be salt and to be light. It needs all of us as Christians to just infiltrate the world with godliness, and it needs all of us to spread the message of the gospel before it's too late. If you're able, stand with me as we read from God's holy word. Again, Matthew chapter 5, starting in the 13th verse. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's the word of the Lord this evening. You may be seated. As many of you know, I used to work in conservative politics. And when I was in that business, I used to travel all over the country. I'd stay in places for weeks or months at a time on assignment. And in 2016, I was managing the Kansas caucus election for future President Trump, and I was living in Topeka for a period of about three months. Now, as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot to do in Topeka, Kansas, so it wasn't a particularly memorable time for me. I mean, we lost the Kansas caucus to Ted Cruz, so I barely escaped Topeka without hearing Mr. Trump utter that famous phrase, you're fired. But as I said, my time in Topeka wasn't particularly memorable. However, one thing from that season of my life has stuck with me. Even seven years later, I can still remember it vividly. See, there was this local news story. And it wasn't so much the story as it was the pictures in the piece that are burned into my memory. Now, the picture at the top of the article was a photo of a vast wheat field somewhere in Kansas. And from horizon to horizon, all you could see was the wheat waving in the wind. Just below that was the second picture in the article. It was a photo of a mother inside her farmhouse in the middle of that wheat field. And the look on her face still haunts me today. I don't think I've ever seen such a look of pure agony. You see, she had a little boy, and he had somehow wandered away from that house and into that wheat field. And the little guy was so small that he couldn't be seen above the stalks of wheat. She couldn't find him. So she called for her husband, and the two of them had searched all day long for their little boy, but they couldn't find him. So then that evening, they decided they should call the neighbors, and the neighbors began to search frantically all over that wheat field. They knew the boy was too little to see above the wheat and find his own way out. So they'd searched, and they'd searched, and they still couldn't find him. You know, in small towns, news travels fast, and that was the case here, because the third picture in the article showed all the people in the community who had heard of the little boy being lost. It was the next morning, and these citizens had gathered together to search for this precious child. They had lined up from one end of the wheat field 
to the other, joining hands, hand in hand, in this great long line of humanity. That third picture was a photo of these people preparing to sweep from one end of that wheat field to the next. And it was only when the entire community got involved that they found the little boy. And that moment, the moment they found him, is shown in the last picture in the article. The last picture in the article was a photo of a heartbroken father standing over the body of his little son. They found him, but he was dead. It was too late. The cold, frigid night had claimed its victim. And underneath that final picture of a weeping father were these words, Oh God, if we had only joined hands sooner. Oh God, if we had only joined hands sooner. Listen, brothers and sisters. Jesus said as He looked out in the fields, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You know, I really believe that there's a world of lost men There's a world of lost women way out in the wheat field of the world and they can't find home. They can't find the Father's house. They can't see above the wheat of the world and they're perishing in the night of sin. And when the cold morning dawns, it'll be too late. And the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, right here in Matthew 5, 13-16, is saying to us, join hands. Join hands. Be salt and light, and sweep through the wheat field of the world. He's saying, go out and find all those who are desperately in need of your influence and my message. But I don't think one or two can do it. I don't even think a handful can do it. It can't just be Pastor Wally and Pastor Joe and Pastor Josh and Pastor Stephen. It can't just be the deacons. It can't just be the pastor's wives and the deacon's wives. I think the whole church has to join hands. Remember, it took the entire community to find the body of that little boy. The difference is they ran out of time. But as long as Christ tarries and there is breath in us, and as long as there is breath in the lost, we still have time. We still have time to go out into the wheat field and bring those lost people into the Father's house. But there's coming a day, brothers and sisters. There is coming a day when it will be too late. Death comes for everyone. And if these lost souls were to leave this world before they put their trust in Christ, if they were to die without knowing Lord Jesus, well, then we will have missed our opportunity to go out into the wheat field and find them. We will have missed our chance to bring them into the Father's house, and they will perish in the cold, dark night of sin. They will spend eternity in hell. Our mission is to lead people to Jesus so He can save them from that awful place. That's our mission, and it's a time-sensitive mission. It's an urgent mission. We should ask ourselves, Do we have that sense of urgency within us? Do we have a burden to reach the lost with the gospel? If we don't, then we need to pray for that sense of urgency in our lives. We need to pray that God strengthens the love in our hearts. We need to pray that our love becomes a love that mimics the perfect love that Jesus showed toward us when He died on a cruel cross. Our Lord calls us to be salt and light and transform the world with His message. But we can't do it alone. Salt is useless as far as one grain is concerned. And we know that light is a combination of beings. It takes all of us. We've got to join hands and sweep through the wheat field of the world. And that's the message that Jesus has given us right here in Matthew 5, 13-16. Now we must remember that this passage comes immediately after the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, another famous portion of Scripture that has touched so many. And it's no coincidence that our command to be salt and light and reach the lost comes right after the Beatitudes because 
in the Beatitudes, Jesus basically says, here's the character I expect you to have. And if you have this kind of character, then you can influence the world just by the way you live your life. Jesus is saying, if you have this kind of character, then you're equipped to reach the lost with my message. Let's look at the Beatitudes just briefly tonight. Turn there with me, if you will. It isn't far to go. We start in verse 3 of this same chapter, Matthew chapter 5. Again, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We'll stop there. Those verses help us to come to know the principles and the qualities that make us effective for God. The qualities that make us capable of carrying His message out into the wheat field of the world. The qualities that make us distinct from the world. But what does it mean to be distinct from the world? Well, look at those verses and ask yourself, do you strive for righteousness more than the unbelievers you know? Are you more merciful than the unbelievers you know? What about your heart? Is there a purity there that you don't see amongst those who don't follow Christ? At the end of the day, the beatitude comes down to a word that we don't hear much in churches anymore. And that word's holiness. Holiness is really, for us, about being like Christ, who is our perfect example of holiness. Now, we can never be as perfect as He is, but we should strive to get our character as close to His as possible. I mean, how can we expect to bring people out of the world and into the kingdom if we don't act any differently than they do? I hope everyone here strives for holiness. But there is a large segment of professing Christendom that you could rightly call carnal Christians. They couldn't care less about holiness. They claim to know Christ. They claim to love Christ. But there is nothing in their lives that makes them distinct from the world. Now, I run into these carnal Christians all the time. These professing Christians who hang out in the bars with the heathen and get drunk three, four, five nights a week. They say to me, well, Brother Jim, you know, Jesus ate with sinners. They're correct in that. Our Lord did eat with sinners. But it's important to note that although He ate with them, He didn't sin with them. But these carnal Christians that fill so many American churches today, they eat with them and they sin with them. And they use that excuse. Jesus ate with sinners. Or that other excuse I've heard so often from Christians who love to drink. Oh, you know, Jesus turned the wine into water. Or how about this from the Christian potheads? Oh, it's all natural, man. God made His plants for us to enjoy. You know, it's not like I'm doing meth. All those excuses for sin are so stupid to me that I don't even feel like I need to justify them with the response tonight. But can I just say this? I'm tired of it. I'm sick and tired of these carnal Christians and the excuses they make for their abominable lifestyles. I'm sorry. But I have a problem with professing Christians that can get drop-dead drunk on a Saturday night, come into church the next morning and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and never feel a nickel's worth of guilt about it. Not even an ounce of conviction. I mean, if they really loved Jesus, they wouldn't be acting like reprobates every night. I mean, really, who do these people think they are to claim Christ and refuse to obey Him? Does Jesus' work on the cross mean that little to them? Who do they think they are to abuse the grace of God like this? If you're a carnal Christian here tonight, repent. Walk worthy of your calling. Appreciate the sacrifice our Lord made for you. Think about your witness. Do you really think you can lead people to Jesus when you're acting like the devil? Now, some of you may find my words a bit harsh. But do you know what's even harsher? Eternal damnation in hell. 
And all those good time buddies, these carnal Christians say they love so much, all these unsaved friends and family members that they say they love so much, do they know that their refusal to obey Christ may be leading these people they say they love straight into hellfire and damnation? Consider this if you're a carnal Christian here tonight. If you're someone who acts one way when you're here at Bible Baptist Church, but when you're out in the world, your character and your conduct are completely different. Just consider this. You're a self-proclaimed Christian. Your responsibility is to guide those around you to Christ. But your own despicable lifestyle, your open disobedience to God have tarnished your witness and destroyed your testimony. Have you ever stopped to think that you might be the only Christian that some people know? And because of your inconsistent and ungodly behavior, you're not able to lead them to Christ because you have no credibility. And because you can't lead them to Christ and you're the only Christian in their life, well, guess what? When they die, they might just split hell wide open. That's the harsh reality we're dealing with. Hell is an incredibly harsh place. Hell is an eternally harsh place. I don't know about you, but when I stand before Christ one day, I don't want that on my record. I don't want my Lord to tell me that a good friend or family member is burning in hell because I couldn't get my act together enough to lead them to salvation. I'm sure some of you are sitting out there thinking, well, I don't go to bars with the heathen. I don't drink. I don't get high. He's not preaching at me. Let me ask you something. Sister, are you a gossip? You tell stories on people within your circle of friends? Brother, do you lose your temper around people? Do you fly off the handle anytime you feel slightly disrespected or offended? What do you think that type of behavior is doing to your witness and your ability to lead people to Christ? Look, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to all of you. We all fall short. But in times like these, when we're surrounded by evil on every side, when the gates of hell are literally rising up against us, we have to be prepared for battle. We have to be ready to answer the call to stand up for Christ in this wicked world. And we can only be effective in that if we're living a holy life. And it takes all of us. If you're here thinking that the holiness of the rest of the people in this church is good enough, if you're letting them do all the heavy lifting, then you have no understanding of this book. God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. The Christian life isn't a spectator sport. It's not like you can just sit on the couch and drink a beer and watch it on TV. If you claim to be a Christian, you need to be on the field. Trust me, guys, it's the bottom of the ninth. The bases are loaded, and there's already two outs. Those poor souls lost out on base need someone to step up to the plate and drive them home. But if you're not living a holy life, you're going to strike out. And that person you say you love is going to burn in hell for eternity because you refused to obey Christ and prepare yourself for the moment. Let's go back to the Beatitudes for a minute. Look at verse 10. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. In other words, Jesus is saying that the world's going to hate us. The world's going to persecute us. We should expect that to happen. We shouldn't expect it to be easy. So we have this call from our Lord to go out into the world and lead people to Him, but He also tells us that the world we have to go out into is going to hate us just because we're Christians. That's a difficult assignment. And I believe it'll get more difficult as time goes on. It's not going to get any easier, folks. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I think God wants us to stand up and be counted for the cause of Christ. I don't think that just because the world makes it tough on us that we should crawl into a hole and hide. I don't think that just because the world tells us to shut up that we should stop speaking truth. No, friends, we don't hide. 
we don't run away and we don't stop telling people about Jesus. We confront the sin in the world. And what's the best way to confront the sin in the world? Well, we show them what a life devoted to Christ looks like. We live by the words of our Lord in Matthew 5.13. We are salt in the world and we are light in the world. And this is a decaying world. It's a world filled with darkness. And what do you need to slow decay? You need salt. Where you have darkness, what do you need? You need light. So how do we fulfill our Lord's command here? How do we serve as salt and light in this decaying and dark world? Well, in the time we have left tonight, we're going to try to answer that question through studying God's Word. I want us to take a closer look at the symbolism in these verses, specifically the symbolism of salt and light. Now, you could say that salt has five basic functions or characteristics. It purifies, it flavors, it stings as when applied to a wound, it creates thirst, and finally it's a preservative. So how do those five functions apply to our Christian lives? Well, we're to be pure in the world, glistening white against the darkness. We're to flavor life with the wonder of God's presence among us. We're to sting and convict the sinful wound of the world. And we're to create a thirst for Christ by the very way we live our lives. And we're to be a preservative. We're an antiseptic in the world to slow down the spread of its corruption. If it weren't for Christians, the world would be far more corrupt than it is now. We preserve it. Salt speaks of quiet influence. Salt is the silent testimony. Salt is us moving through the wheat field of the world and affecting it with our very lives. Jesus is really telling us here that the earth is like a carcass, slowly but relentlessly deteriorating and rotting, and it's in great need of some power to restrain that corruption, to create a thirst for God, to sting sin's wound, to flavor life, and to bring purity to some dark and decaying soul. We are that salt. This is the witness of the silent impact of a godly life. Listen, the way to change the world isn't to change it politically. The way to change the world isn't to rewrite the laws. It isn't to march in protest. The way to change the world, brothers and sisters, is just to infiltrate it with godliness and righteousness and holiness to affect it from the inside out. Now, I don't want to give you some false idea that we're supposed to be some winsome group of people that just lets the world walk all over us. It's true that getting all caught up in political arguments is not the way to change the world as a Christian. But there are times when we must take a stand. There are times when we must make our voices heard, especially to protect innocent lives that are under attack from a demonic government. It's righteous to stand up for laws that protect the lives of the unborn. It's godly to stand against the sodomite agenda undermining biblical marriage, this sodomite agenda that is trying to convince innocent children to have irreversible surgeries and join this transgender cult. This government is literally trying to convince children to mutilate themselves. If they can't kill them in the womb, they'll destroy their lives after they're born. I mean, how can we not stand against this demonic agenda? This entire power structure in this fallen nation has been given over to this satanic gender confusion ideology. It's incredible to me how this country can take weak young men with solvable issues and sacrifice them at the altar of transgenderism. I mean, what type of society looks at these weak, confused boys and says, I know what will solve your problems. Mutilate yourself. What a country we've become. What wickedness. This nation's under divine judgment. This nation has been given over to a reprobate mind. So yes, we should take a stand against this demonic agenda. This demonic agenda being promoted by the enemies of Christ. We must not bow to it. We must only bow to Jesus. And you know what? One day they're going to bow to Him too. So yes, there are times when we must take a stand, but that stand is going to be meaningless unless our lives are what they ought to be.
Think about it this way. Never have Christians been more involved in social action in our country. Never have we been more preoccupied with politics. And what's the result? A society that's more immoral than it's ever been. Because you can post on Facebook about how outraged you are at Joe Biden until you get carpal tunnel. But if you're not being salt and living a holy life, who's taking you seriously? The life has to be there. A holy life, submitting to Christ as Lord. Before you can make a difference for Christ in the world, you have to serve Him in humble, holy obedience. And when we do that, God uses us, grains of salt, to influence a corrupted world. But it doesn't stop with influence. Now we come to the next thing, and that's light. Look at verse 14. It starts out, ye are the light of the world. You know, salt and light balance each other in a sense. Grains of salt are hidden. You don't see them work. They just melt away into whatever they flavor or preserve. Salt works secretly to preserve from the inside, but light shines on the outside, and light is open, and light is working visibly. In other words, salt is the influence of Christian character. It's quiet, but it's powerful. Light is a communication of the content of the gospel. And so you have both sides. On one hand, we live it, and on the other hand, we preach it. But you can't have one without the other. No one will take your presentation of the gospel seriously if you don't live a holy life. And I can't stress how important that is. You have to have both. You have to live it and you have to preach it. We're not just a subtle influence like salt. We're to be a very open and blatant influence like light. Because you see, salt can't change corruption into incorruption. Salt only slows corruption. Salt only holds back corruption. We have to turn on the light of the gospel to transform corruption into incorruption. Look at what our Lord says in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. That implies, first of all, that they see our good works, which means we actually have to have good works. That's being salt. Secondly, that they glorify our Father in heaven. This means that they've had to have heard something about our Father in heaven. That's being light. It implies both a life and a message lived and spoken. And so here we are as salt, regulating the things of corruption in the world, but at the same time as light, we speak the truth of the gospel. So there's an open and positive testimony as well. We're to live an open and obedient life filled with good works, and we're to tell people about God, and we're to tell them about God's word, and we're to tell them about God's Christ. That's letting the light shine. And it's got to be spoken, and it's got to be supported by a holy life. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here in chapter 4, would be verse 6, the Apostle Paul gives the believers in Corinth some words to edify them. He writes of the transformative power of the divine light that God shines on the hearts of believers. Look at verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's so important. As believers, God has shined the magnificent light of His Son on our hearts. Are we sharing that light with the world as we're commanded to do? Are we actually ever telling people about Jesus? Are we looking for opportunities and conversations to tell people about our Lord? Or are we keeping the light to ourselves? Imagine this. A man sitting in a beautiful sunny room. He just loves the sunshine. Makes him so happy. He enjoys the sunshine in this room so much that he wants to keep it all to himself. So he has an idea. Not a great idea, but an idea nonetheless. He thinks, I know, I'll just shut the curtain so that none of this wonderful light gets out and then I can have it all to myself. But what happens when he closes the curtain? Puts himself back in darkness. 
You know, when we try to hoard up the light within ourselves, it diminishes. The light was given to us so that we could share it with others. Turn over to Philippians. This letter is filled with encouragement and exhortations for joy and contentment in Christ. And the Apostle Paul wrote it from a jail cell. Are you guys worried about persecution? I want to tell you something about having joy through persecution. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. That's it, brothers and sisters. You've got to live the life if you're going to be light in a dark world. The life has to be there. A blameless life. Harmless and without rebuke. Listen, if they're going to criticize us, let, us have, let them have to make something up. Let them have to lie about us because there's nothing in our lives they can use against us. If we have to be hated, let us be like Christ. Hated without a cause. Now remember though, it also says, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We've got to be visible, friends. We can't just be a secret influence. We've got to be visible. And the light has to shine openly. We're not subtle salt only. We're very bright lights as well. We're not in a secret society like the Freemasons. We're not pagans with mysteries only for the initiated. We don't have a cult known only to the few. We're a city set on a hill. The whole world ought to see us. Don't be scared to talk about your faith. That's what they want. The enemies of Christ are trying to create an environment and an atmosphere in which you're scared to tell people what the Word of God says. You say marriage is between one man and one woman? You're a bigot. You say a woman that kills her baby in the womb is a murderer? You're unloving. But picture this. A woman driving 100 miles per hour toward a cliff with a steep drop. What's the loving and non-bigoted thing to do? Wave as she goes by and say, You go girl, live your truth. Is that love? No. No, love is screaming at the top of your lungs, Stop! Turn back before it's too late. That's love. Love is telling people to repent of their sins, believe in Christ, and follow Him before it's too late. And that's being light. But remember, we've got to be salt before we can be light. We've got to have the character and the influence before we have a message that's believable. So that's the divine plan. Live a godly life so that you have the credibility to share the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Be salt and be light. As we bring this message to a close, I want to ask you two questions. Are you the kind of salt that slows corruption? Are you the kind of light that attracts people to the message of Christ? There's a wheat field out there, and the wheat's too tall for the people who are lost to see the Father's house. And we've got to join hands as a church, and we've got to go from one end of that wheat field to the other before it's too late, before it's too late and we come to one whom the cold of night has taken to a Christless grave. Look, brothers and sisters, as I said earlier, you may be sitting out there thinking, oh, there's enough holy people here at Bible Baptist Church. I don't have to get my life together. The rest of them will pick up the slack. Is your head that deep in the sand? Have you not looked around at the world we're living in? We're surrounded by people who rejoice in murdering babies. We're surrounded by people who rejoice in corrupting the minds of children. Don't you know what time it is? Hell itself is rising up against us in this nation. Wake up! Children are being corrupted. Children are being murdered. The masses are being deceived by this satanic agenda. And you love your sin so much that you're just going to rely on somebody else to fight the battle for you. Shame on you. Repent. Be salt and light. 
Be part of this church that's infiltrating the world with godliness. This church that's shining the light of the gospel on a lost and dying world. God, help us to join hands before it's too late for some. We know even today some have passed into eternity. Tomorrow, some more will pass into eternity. The Lord told us to take the gospel to every creature. If we were to die tomorrow, could it be said that we made a difference in the world for Christ? I think God's going to call on us in the days ahead to stand up and be counted for His cause. But it takes all of us to join hands and move through the wheat field of the world and find all those who are helplessly lost. We all know people bound for hell. People that we love, spouses, children, parents. At least we say we love them, but if they were to die today, they'd be spending eternity in hell, in that awful place where the fires will never be quenched. Unimaginable heat and impenetrable darkness will torment their souls for eternity. There are people we love destined for that eternal torture. Their only hope is that someone reaches them with the gospel before it's too late. Are we doing all we can? Are we doing all we can? This is a life and death situation. It's an eternal life and death situation. Let's join hands, brothers and sisters, and go out in that wheat field. Let's form a search party for the lost under the banner of Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe some of you are here today and you're lost out in that wheat field. Maybe you're lost in sin and can't see a way out. Maybe you don't think you're worthy of Christ. You think you're too much of a sinner to be forgiven and redeemed. Friend, let me let you in on a little secret. There isn't a soul here worthy of Christ and His forgiveness. Not this preacher, not any Christian in this room. That's what makes it so special. Through His grace and mercy, God grants us forgiveness and eternal life that we in no way deserve. So if you're lost out in that wheat field, know that you have people searching for you. Cry out. Make it easier for us to find you. Just a minute, Pastor Wally's going to lead an invitation. There's no better time to be saved than right now. Jesus is offering you free entry into the Father's house. All you have to do is ask for forgiveness for your sins, believe in Lord Jesus, and follow Him. That's all you have to do to get out of that cold wheat field and come into the Father's house. That's my hope. That's my prayer tonight. God bless you all. Best of all.